Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 153 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In this episode, we're talking about the French seer Nostradamus and his remarkable predictions. One of the most famous seers of the last millennium was Nostradamus, an enigmatic French mystic from the 1500s. He issued a book of nearly 1,000 prophecies, and they've been in print ever since. Hundreds of books have been written about him, and millions have sought to interpret his prophecies. Recently, there's been a renaissance in Nostradamus scholarship, and we may finally have the answers we need to understand what was really going on in his life and prophecies. So, who was Nostradamus? What secret techniques did he use, and could he really foretell the future? Nostradamus is an interesting figure. His prophecies are often widely misunderstood and misapplied, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to them. From the faith perspective, it could be that Nostradamus had a mix of things going on. Some of it may have been superstitious, some of it could have been divine guidance, and some of it could have been psychic. At least the faith perspective allows such a combination of things to be taking place in his case. Whether it was taking place is a matter that we'll need to sort out from the reason perspective. Next week, we'll look at Nostradamus from the reason perspective and see what we can determine about whether he did or didn't have the ability to predict the future. Also, we'll be looking at the secret technique he may have been using that would unlock the real meaning of many of his prophecies. listening to episode 154 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Nostradamus and whether he really had the ability to see the future. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, stick around to the end of the episode when we will have your feedback from our two episodes on Paul Benowitz, Richard Doty, and Project Beta. But first, the 16th century French seer Nostradamus continues to fascinate the public. Many of his practices would be considered superstitious today. But that doesn't mean his prophecies are worthless. So did Nostradamus have a real ability to predict the future? How should we interpret his prophecies? And what was the secret technique he used to compose them? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what's the current state of play in our discussion of Nostradamus? Last episode, we told you about Nostradamus, his life, and what he said about the way he predicted the future. 
we concluded that what he was doing was basically in accord with how the Christian faith was understood at the time. In fact, both Catholics and Protestants took his prediction seriously. Today, we would consider many of his methods superstitious, but that doesn't mean his predictions are worthless. You can have superstitious ideas on some subjects, and frankly, everybody does. Everybody believes too much or too little about something, even the most skeptical people. But you can still be accurate on other things. For our purposes, Nostradamus may have had a genuine way of predicting the future, even if he had some superstitious ideas about how it worked. So we need to look at Nostradamus's prophecies from the reason perspective and answer several questions about them. What challenges do we face when interpreting them? Because interpreting them is a key step in evaluating whether they're accurate. How should they really be interpreted? How accurate are they? And how did he really come up with them? Because there's evidence he was using a secret method he didn't tell anybody about. Okay, so what can we say about Nostradamus from the reason perspective? To start, what challenges do we face when trying to interpret his writings? There are several. For a start, it's very hard to get an accurate text of Nostradamus's most famous book, The Prophecies. This work was published in three editions that got progressively larger, and the final edition didn't even appear until after his death. As Richard Seaberth, the translator of the Penguin edition of The Prophecies, explains, The original from which a translation, or any interpretation, derives is usually assumed to be in some sense authoritative. Nothing could be further from the truth in Nostradamus's case. The original texts of his prophecies are notoriously unstable, laced as they are with printer's errors that arose during the oral dictation of the fair copies to harried compositors plucking type from dwindling sets of font. Given the distance between Nostradamus's hometown of Salon and the publishing epicenter of Lyon, the proofreading of his text was often desultory, if not downright garbled. There is, therefore, no truly credible original of his prophecies, just a welter of different printings which philologists have attempted to collate. So Nostradamus apparently went to the printer's shop in Lyon and orally dictated the text to the printers who were scrambling to grab individual letter punches from a limited supply and put them into page frames for printing. That lent itself to errors, as did the fact that proofreading them afterwards was hard because of the distance between where Nostradamus lived and where the printers were located. And we're not even sure how the third and largest edition of the prophecies was typeset since it came after his death. Have modern scholars been able to help with this confused situation? They have. There has been a resurgence in scholarly Nostradamus research in the last few decades. And in 1996, a critical edition of the first edition of the prophecies was released in which a Canadian scholar sought to correct the numerous typos that had appeared in previous editions. Then, in 2003, an edition was released that did the same thing for the second expanded edition of the Prophecies. Unfortunately, as of 2012, when the Penguin edition was released, there was no scholarly text for the third and largest edition of the Prophecies, which would have included the final part of the work that brought it up to 942 Prophecies. Still, the situation is much better than it used to be. What other challenges do we face when interpreting the Prophecies? For those of us who speak English, one of the challenges is translation. Nostradamus wrote the prophecies primarily in French. That means we need translators to help us out. 
But the translators who were working before the modern critical edition started coming out were automatically translating from inferior error-ridden texts. Even with a critical edition for much of the text available today, there are different translation philosophies which can be more literal or more dynamic in how they render what Nostradamus said. Both philosophies have advantages and disadvantages when trying to understand what an author means, and neither is to be automatically preferred above the other. A problem that affects even French speakers, though, is the fact that Nostradamus isn't writing in contemporary French. He's writing in 1500s French, and he's following the conventions of that time. In his book, Nostradamus Bibliomancer, Peter Lemassurier explains, In the approved manner of the day, Nostradamus usually prefers to use his French words in their original Latin senses. In addition, many French words and phrases have changed their meanings since Nostradamus's day. Thus, in the original, the word siècle corresponds to cycle or age, not century. Plusieurs, to many, not several. Insult, to attack, not insult. Sur, to sure, not sister. Combien que, to although. Ciel, like its Latin original, sometimes to region instead of sky. Pour and pas are virtually interchangeable. Devant can stand for avant. Ains corresponds to but after a negative. Un grand, in the absence of a related following noun, is a noble or a lord. So there have been lots of shifts in French between the 1500s and the 2000s. Faced with these translation problems, what do you recommend that listeners who are interested in researching Nostradamus do? The same thing I recommend people do who ask about different Bible versions. Don't rely on one translation. When texts and translations are in doubt, there's safety in numbers. To deal with the lack of critical editions in previous years, I suggest not using older translations of Nostradamus. The oldest that I would suggest using is the translation of Edgar Leone, which came out in 1961 and has been the most common English version until recently. It's a fairly literal translation and it's useful, but don't rely on it for strict accuracy because there were no critical editions of the base text when it was published in 61. Most definitely supplement this version with the more recent ones that have taken advantage of what we know now. This includes the 2012 Richard Seabirth translation that's found in the Penguin edition, which tried to pay attention to some of the poetic considerations that Nostradamus used in French. So it's not fully literal, but it's still useful. Also useful are Peter Lemassurier's translations, which are found in his books, including Nostradamus Bibliomancer. But don't rely on just one translation of Nostradamus to give you the absolute truth any more than you would rely on just one translation of the Bible to fully reflect everything it says. Yet, translation isn't even the biggest issue that we face when trying to understand Nostradamus. We haven't even talked about cultural context. Why is cultural context important? Because to interpret any prophecy, you need to understand what the original audience knew. People speak in the idiom of their time, and you'll misread the text if you're not aware of the cultural context. I mean, for example, and this is a linguistic one, but for example, suppose you're reading an old text from the 1200s, and you run across a sentence that says, the Lord gave him his meat to eat. If you interpret that based on what it would mean today, you'd assume that a Lord gave somebody animal flesh to eat, because that's what the word meat means today, animal flesh. But 
That's a meaning we've only had in English since the 1300s. In the 1200s, when this imaginary text was written, the word meat simply meant food. And so all the text is saying is that the Lord gave a person food to eat, not animal flesh in particular. Now, like I said, that's a linguistic example, but the same thing happens with other cultural items. For instance, today, in the early 21st century, a typical adult would recognize what you're talking about if you refer to when the Twin Towers fell, a reference to the 9-11 attacks. Similarly, they'd know what you're talking about if you refer to Mulder and Scully, the characters from the X-Files. And many people would understand what a reference to Beantown is, Beantown being a nickname for your hometown, Dom, of Boston. That's right. Now, suppose... Someone from 500 years in the future, in the 26th century, was encountering these same references. If they're no longer part of popular culture, they'd have no idea what the Twin Towers Falling refers to, no idea who Mulder and Scully are, and no idea where Beantown is. In trying to figure out these references, they'd almost certainly misunderstand what's being said unless they did research to find out what these cultural items referred to in the 21st century. That's essentially the problem that we 21st century people have when trying to interpret Nostradamus's 16th century text. People today simply aren't familiar with the culture of 500 years ago, and that makes it very easy to get things wrong. In Nostradamus's case, it's even more difficult because he read tons of ancient literature, and so he didn't confine himself to just the French culture of his day. He makes loads of references to things that are in his own day, or from the Middle Ages, or from classical antiquity, you know, Greek and Roman stuff, for reasons we'll see. The bottom line is you either need to be an expert in all these fields, or you need to do research and see what scholars have come up with when they've studied him, if you want to know what Nostradamus is referring to in his prophecies. Perhaps the biggest problem with interpreting Nostradamus is how obscure the prophecies are. Do you have any idea why he phrased them in a way that's so hard to interpret? Nostradamus addresses this directly in his letter to King Henry. He says, Because kingdoms, sects, and religions shall undergo such dramatic changes, changes so diametrically opposed to the present state of things, that if I were to reveal what the future brings, the people of the kingdoms, sects, religions, and faiths would find it so discordant to the fancy of their ears that they would condemn that which in centuries to come will be recognized as having been actually seen and witnessed. I have since then decided to extend myself, declaring to the common assembly, by means of abstruse and puzzling utterances, the things of the future even the most imminent ones, and those that I have seen, however much these might disrupt and scandalize their fragile ears, and the whole thing written in nebulous figures rather than palpably prophetic. So he's seen that the state of the world is going to change so much that if he said plainly what's going to happen, people simply wouldn't believe it. As a result, he's saying things cryptically enough that people of his day won't be able to figure out just how much things will change. But in hindsight, people will be able to see that his prophecies were correct, but only after they happen. And you have to admit, if you got in your TARDIS and told someone in the 1500s in France what the present state of the world is like, they almost certainly would not believe you. 
You said there's evidence Nostradamus was using a secret method that he didn't tell anybody about when he was formulating his prophecies. What might he have been doing? This idea has been explored particularly by Peter Lemessurier, especially in his book Nostradamus Bibliomancer. I'm not convinced by everything Lemessurier says, but I think he's really onto something here. Part of his argument is that Nostradamus definitely wasn't getting all this information by doing astrological calculations. In fact, Nostradamus wasn't even a competent astrologer, and he was attacked in his own day by professional astrologers, such as, uh, for example, one named Videl, for being incompetent in the craft. Le Messurier writes, Videl is quite specific. In his 1557 almanac, Nostradamus had misplaced the sun at the vernal equinox, putting it at 0 degrees 53 minutes of Aries, instead of at 0 degrees 0 minutes, where it should by definition have been. He had placed the full moon of January 1557 in Cancer, while at the same time placing the sun, which should, again by definition, have been directly opposite it, in Aquarius, which isn't directly opposite it. For February 28, 1557, he had mistakenly put the sun and the new moon in quite different positions in Pisces, instead of in the same one where they should have been. Elsewhere, he had even put the sun in two different parts of the sky at once. Throughout, he had used raw figures for noon that were given in a set of tables composed for Bologna, Italy, without any attempt to extrapolate from them for either Lyon or Paris, let alone his home in Salon. In short, Videl maintains, Of true astrology, you, Nostradamus, understand less than nothing. You cannot calculate the least movement of any star whatever, and no more than knowing the movements do you understand how to use your planetary tables. And that's quite a bit of astrological incompetence. Putting the sun in the sky at two different positions simultaneously is kind of staggering. Le Messurier continues, The criticism is damning, but as modern analysis reveals, fully justified. Nostradamus, it is perfectly clear, was a rank amateur where astrology was concerned. Not only was he incapable of drawing up his own tables or calculating the ascendant, the celestial position of the eastern horizon, as any professional astrologer could have done. All his astrological data are easily traceable back through their figures to their true published authors. He was even incapable of correctly applying the data actually published by those same astrologers when he freely picked and chose from among them, rather than calculating, as he sometimes claimed, his own. Apparently assuming, for example, that the astrological houses covered exactly the same areas of the sky as the astrological signs, and as a result, frequently putting the planets in the wrong ones. It's also telling that Nostradamus didn't particularly like drawing up horoscopes for people. If his customers already had ones that had been prepared by other astrologers, he would ask to see them, ostensibly so that he could compare them with his own, but more likely so that he would be saved the bother, because he really wasn't very good at making them. And this goes along with what we said last episode, that Nostradamus didn't want to be called an astrologer. He preferred being called an astrophile or one who loves the stars. And it's why he put so much emphasis on astrological calculations only being part of his procedure for predicting the future. It was more significantly based on his hereditary natural intuition and divine guidance with astrological calculations playing a subordinate role. 
he was a psychic or visionary who used some astrological techniques, not a true professional astrologer. Le Masurier concludes, Nostradamus, in short, was not an astrologer, which is presumably why he never called himself one. Instead, he actually attacked them. A contemporary astrologer, after all, was by definition a master of his craft, able to draw up his own tables and extrapolate from them. Nostradamus, as, as we have seen, lacked the knowledge and experience to do either. In evident acknowledgment of this, he instead routinely called himself an astrophile or star lover. This description was certainly valid. On his own evidence, he loved to sit out under the stars at night, not least on top of the tower of the nearby castle. He felt that the stars spoke to him, that the panoply of heaven was in some sense the visible mind of God, reflecting as in a concave mirror future events upon the earth beneath. In that sense, he saw himself as a mystic rather than as an astrological technician. So despite the fact you'll constantly read that Nostradamus was an astrologer, this was true only in a limited sense. But Lemassurier thinks that there was even more going on besides the psychic impressions that Nostradamus got when contemplating the stars, something that Nostradamus didn't tell anybody about. What does he think he was doing? We already mentioned that Nostradamus has lots of historical references in his prophecies, and that's definitely true. Here's a list Le Masurier offers of some of the classical references Nostradamus makes in his almanacs. In his annual almanacs, he mentions and brings to life again a whole range of such ancient figures, often preceded by the words anew or other indications to that effect. Among them, in no particular order, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Pompey, Augustus Caesar, Mark Antony, Lepidus, Marius, Achilles, Hippocrates, Hieron of Syracuse, Brennus, Thrasybulus, Democritus, Jason, Leonidas, Dionysius of Syracuse, Scylla, Themistocles, Ataxerxes, Zoroaster, together with a repetition of the Persian Age, the Carthaginians generally, Scipio, Hannibal, Fabius, Marcellus, Aristides, Caligula, Cato, Claudius, Nero, Ogmius, Palamedes, Pyrrhus, Hippolytus, Parmenian, Trajan, Tiberius, Harmodius, and Aristogiton, to mention only a number of classical examples. So Nostradamus' predictions are filled with references to figures like a new Alexander or a new Caligula. Why might this be? Why might he have so many references to the past in writings about the future? The proposed answer is because he thinks history repeats itself. And this view wasn't unique to Nostradamus. It goes way back. Among classical historians, and notably Plutarch, the argument was that because humans create history and human nature doesn't change, history can only repeat itself. Plutarch demonstrated the idea in his biography series, Parallel Lives, by comparing the lives of a whole range of figures from Greek and Roman history, respectively, such as Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, under the terms of which Caesar could consequently be described as another Alexander. The Greek historian Plutarch lived in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, and he definitely thought history repeated itself. That's the point of his famous biography series, Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, also known as the Parallel Lives or simply Plutarch's Lives. They're biographies of notable historical figures, but they come in pairs so that you can observe how one historical figure's life is similar to another's. 
That's why they're called parallel lives, because in each pair, Plutarch shows the parallels between the life of a Greek figure and a corresponding Roman figure. The pair that's easiest for people today to recognize is the one of the Greek figure Alexander the Great with the Roman figure Julius Caesar. Both of them were great conquerors who built empires but were struck down before their time. He also parallels many other figures, though, such as the Greek Aristides with the Roman Cato the Elder, or the Greek Lysander with the Roman Sulla, or the Greek Demetrius with the Roman Mark Anthony. The idea is that Nostradamus also held this view that history repeats itself so you could look to the past as a guide for what's going to happen in the future. Le Messurier refers to this as the Janus effect, after the Roman god Janus, who had two faces, one of which looked to the past and the other of which looked to the future. And Le Messurier isn't alone in this. Other authors have also noted the number of historical parallels in Nostradamus's predictions with references to a new Alexander or a new Hannibal, and concluded that Nostradamus had a cyclical view of history. Even if you think history repeats, you'd still need a way to determine which specific events are going to reoccur and when in history they're going to happen again. How do people think Nostradamus determined this? One way you could do this is by looking at when a great event occurred, noting the positions of the stars and planets, and then asking when the stars and planets would be in the same relationship or a similar relationship in the future. In his book on Nostradamus, Stefan Gerson writes, In addition to studying planetary influences, he practiced judicial astrology, the art of making forecasts about wars or epidemics based on the position of the planets. The technique rested on a cyclical conception of time and the conviction that astral conjunctions, like eclipses or comets, affected terrestrial events. Having identified a past event, the astrologer determined its longitude and latitude, the prevailing conjunction, and its location in the firmament. He then calculated the recurrence of this conjunction, and hence of similar events. Lesser conjunctions returned every 20 years, major ones every 240 years, great ones every 960 years. The most infrequent were also the most destructive. Nostradam thus linked a conjunction between Saturn and Jupiter in the House of Cancer to religious strife. And it's quite likely that Nostradamus did use such recurring patterns in the stars to determine when historical events would recur. But as Le Messurier has pointed out, he wasn't particularly good at this sort of thing. And so he thinks there was more going on than this. And we'll find out what that was after we take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Molly P., Kazval V., David V., Mardell B., and Felix L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com 
and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. So, Jimmy, what does Lemassurier think Nostradamus was actually doing? One of the things we've discussed in previous episodes, particularly episode 79 on religion, magic, science, and psychic phenomena, and in episode 106 on Aquinas and the occult, is a practice known as sortilage. It takes different forms, but the basic idea is you use a random process, something that humans do not determine the outcome of. And you ask God or the gods to guide you by what the outcome is. For example, in the Old Testament, we see a case where of uh, this where Jonah is on a on the boat and it's storming, so the sailors decide to cast lots to determine who is the source of the problem. And when they do, they discover it's Jonah. So they toss him into the sea and he gets eaten by the big fish. That casting of lots being a random process that humans don't have control over the outcome of, unless they're cheating. We also see an example of this in the New Testament, where the apostles are replacing Judas, and they have two good candidates, but they don't know which one God wants, so they pray about it, and then they cast lots to find out. One version of sortilege is a practice known as bibliomancy. It comes from the Greek roots biblion, which means a book, and mantea, which means an oracle. So bibliomancy is getting an oracle by means of a book. And that's what Lemassurier thinks Nostradamus was doing. It was a very ancient divinatory technique practiced, especially among the religious, almost since the dawn of time, or of literary time at least. It was practiced among the ancient Hindus, the Hebrews, and the Greeks, and was well known to Christians too, right up until Nostradamus's time. Some people still indulge in it today. Among the Romans, it was a state-sanctioned technique known as the Sortes Virgilianae, and it was practiced, as the name implies, on the basis of the supposedly prophetic works of the poet Virgil, which Nostradamus himself knew and imitated, calling their author the Prince of Poets. The emperors Hadrian, Alexander Severus, Gordian II, and Claudius II are all known to have practiced it. Even St. Augustine of Hippo is said to have identified his future vocation by applying the technique to the text of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And Lemassurier is right. Ancient poets were thought to have been inspired by the gods, and there was this practice known as the Sortes Virgilianae, in which one picked up a copy of the works of the Roman poet Virgil and opened it to a random place to find guidance on some question. There was also a Sortes Homericae, where you did the same thing with the works of the poet Homer. And in a specifically Christian context, there was the Sortes Sanctorum, where you opened the holy books, the scriptures, for guidance. That's what St. Augustine famously did. As he writes in his confessions, he was really miserable about the fact that he had come to believe in God, but was still struggling with sin. In misery I exclaimed, how long, how long shall I continue to say, tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not this very hour put an end to my uncleanness? This I said weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, and suddenly I heard a voice from a neighboring house in a singing tune saying, and often repeating in the voice of a boy or girl, Take 
take and read, take and read. Immediately I stopped weeping, and I began to think intently as to whether the singing of words like these was part of any children's game, and I could not remember ever hearing anything like it before. I checked the force of my tears and rose to my feet, interpreting it as nothing other than a divine command to open the book and read the first passage to be found. For I had heard of St. Anthony that he happened to enter when the gospel was being read, and as though the words were spoken directly to himself, he accepted the admonition, Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And by such an oracle he had been immediately converted to you. So I eagerly returned to that place where Alypius was sitting, for there I had left the book of the apostle when I stood up. I snatched the book, opened and read in silence the passage which first met my eye. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh in concupiscence. I did not want to read further. There was no need to. For as soon as I reached the end of this sentence, it was as though my heart was filled with the light of confidence, and all the shadows of my doubts were swept away. The passage that St. Anthony heard when the gospel was being read in church was Matthew 19.21, and the passage that St. Augustine read is Romans 13.13. And he took this as a sign that this was the moment to break with sin and have a moral conversion. And other saints have done the same kind of thing, including St. Francis of Assisi. It's also been used, this practice has also been used in various Protestant traditions, including Methodism and Calvinism. What Le Messurier is proposing is that Nostradamus did essentially the same thing to craft his prophecies, using the various classical books in his library. He says, This technique was and is called bibliomancy, and it is inconceivable that a man as fascinated by ancient divinatory techniques as Nostradamus would not have heard of it. Basically, it involves randomly selecting a book from a bookshelf, letting it fall open of itself at any page at random, randomly selecting a passage or passages from that page as a source of guidance. This final phase can be based either on, as it were, selecting a passage with a pin, possibly by while wearing a blindfold, which might be called the strict method, or on simply seeing which passage jumps out of the eye, which might be called the psychic method. Knowing Nostradamus's personal proclivities, the latter approach seems more likely to have appealed to him as being more in keeping with his role as an esotericist. Le Messurier also writes, A particularly interesting example of this is provided by his very first two verses in the prophecies. Here he has evidently taken two passages that appeared on the selfsame double page in the edition of Iamblichus's De Mysteries Egyptorium, published in Lyon in 1552, that he presumably already had on his bookshelf. On the left-hand page, he found himself presented with a description of the activities of the ancient Delphic oracle, and on the right with a description of the equivalent ones practiced at Brancidae, described in the text as Brancus. Both evidently seemed apt as metaphorical representations of his own activities, presumably taking his discovery of them to be the result of divine inspirations. He consequently took the first as a basis for his first quatrain, and the second almost word for word as the basis for his second. 
And this seems accurate. In the very first quatrain of the prophecies, Nostradamus does use imagery related to the Pythian oracle of Apollo at Delphi. And then in the second quatrain, he uses imagery related to the Branchidian oracle of Apollo at Didyma. The fact that these reflect what's found on facing pages in the 1552 edition of Iamblichus's book on the mysteries of Egypt that Nostradamus who was fascinated by such books, likely had, is just further evidence for the theory. In these two quatrains, Nostradamus depicts himself as if he's doing the same thing these oracles did. How literally should that be taken? I don't think it should be taken very literally. He is, after all, writing poetry here. The quatrains are four-line poems, and poems frequently use non-literal imagery. For example, here's the first quatrain in Le Messurier's translation. Being seated by night in secret study, alone resting on the bronze stool, a slight flame emerging from solitude makes me utter what it is not vain to believe. One of the images here is of Nostradamus sitting on a bronze stool, and the oracle at Delphi was supposed to sit on a large bronze tripod as a stool. But this isn't an image that Nostradamus only uses in the prophecies. He also uses it elsewhere, and he modifies it to describe his prophetic practices as sitting, as it were, on a bronze stool. Adding qualifiers like, as it were, indicates that he didn't really do this. It's just a poetic image he's using to suggest he's doing something similar to the oracle at Delphi. So we shouldn't press the poetic imagery in these or any other quatrains and assume that they're literal. We need to recognize them for the poetic devices they are. Here in the first two quatrains, we have what look like historical allusions to two of the Greek oracles. Have scholars identified other historical allusions behind Nostradamus's quatrains? Yeah, Le Messurier writes, Of the 942 verse predictions in Nostradamus's seminal book, The Prophecies, no less than 653 have been traced back with a high degree of probability to earlier events or ancient prophecies, and in many cases to specific historical accounts of the former. So historical allusions for 653 out of the 942 quatrains, or 70% of them, have been identified. Also, Le Messurier notes that the allusions have been traced in many cases to specific historical accounts. That means we've identified the specific source Nostradamus was using. For example, we wouldn't just know that he's referring to Caesar crossing the Rubicon, but to which Roman historian's account of Caesar crossing the Rubicon, you know, what book he got it from. And in some cases, it's verified that Nostradamus had these particular books in his library. We also can tell which books he liked the most for these purposes. For example, there is a book of prophetic material that was published in 1522 known as the Mirabilis Liber, or Marvelous Book. And Nostradamus apparently used it multiple times when composing the prophecies. Does the idea he was using bibliomancy shed any extra light on the prophecies? It potentially sheds light on several things. One of them is the organization of the book. It's clear that, despite what interpreters might want, the quatrains are not in chronological order. You 
can't infer that just because a quatrain is later in the prophecies that it refers to a later point in history. That's obvious from the fact that one of the last quatrains says it's dealing with events in 1999, and there's an earlier quatrain dealing with the year 3797. So you can't use the prophecies as a chronological map of the future. However, a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out if they're organized in some other way, and they haven't had luck with that. If he was using bibliomancy, it would explain why there's no apparent organizational scheme to the prophecies. He simply went to his shelf, picked a random book, and opened it to come up with a prophecy. So there's randomness built into the system, and it would be a waste of time to try to figure out an organizational scheme among the quatrains. Another thing it potentially sheds light on is the name of the work itself. You'll recall from the last episode that Nostradamus repeatedly said he didn't want to be called a prophet. So how can he write a book called The Prophecies if he's not a prophet? One way he could write such a book is if he's only collecting prophecies that already existed, that are hidden in other people's books. Le Messurier writes, For many people who have long supposed Nostradamus to have been the preeminent prophet of the 16th century, if not of all time, these unequivocal denials that he was a prophet may come as something of a shock, especially as the full title of his best-known book, the one that we're discussing here, was Les Prophéties de Monsieur Michel Nostradamus. Even granted that this French formulation could just as well be interpreted to mean the prophecies by Monsieur Michel Nostradamus as the prophecies of Monsieur Michel Nostradamus, perhaps the ambiguity was deliberate, so suggesting perhaps that he might merely be re recapitulating and re-expressing prophecies that had existed since long before his time. Ambiguity, then, was definitely the name of the game. Somehow, he was claiming to be both a prophet and not a prophet. But then there's the biggest thing that the bibliomancy theory could help us with, which is unlocking the meaning of the prophecies. If scholars can identify where a particular quatrain came from, that gives us a huge clue about what kind of event Nostradamus is saying will happen again in the future. If you want to know what a quatrain means, look up the historical source that Nostradamus based it on, and you'll know what he's saying is going to recur. That's a major advance over the kind of random guesswork that has governed most people's reading of the prophecies. And the good news, as we've said, is that scholars have already identified probable historical sources for 70% of the quatrains. In fact, summarizing these sources is a major part of Le Messurier's book. So if you're interested in researching Nostradamus, I strongly suggest you get a copy so that you can look up the likely sources of the different quatrains. Do you think that bibliomancy fully explains what Nostradamus was doing in composing the quatrains? I suspect it was a big part of what he was doing, but I don't think it was all of it. Nostradamus admits to using multiple techniques simultaneously when doing horoscopes for other people, or when he did the reading on his friend's ring or in his alchemical work. I think he was just an interdisciplinary kind of guy. And so, although I suspect he was using bibliomancy in composing the prophecies, I also suspect he used other means. And this is supported by the fact that there are astrological references in some of the quatrains. That suggests he may have opened a book to get part of the event, 
but also done some astrological calculations, just like he would both do astrological calculations and use other means in doing other paranormal work. If Nostradamus believed that history repeats, could some of the events repeat more than once before the year 3797? Could a person claim that there are multiple fulfillments for a single quatrain so that whenever a person like Alexander the Great appears, it would count as a new fulfillment of a quatrain about a new Alexander appearing? You might think so, and this would be a very good way for Nostradamus to claim hits, you know, where he correctly predicts the future. But he actually says the opposite. In his letter to King Henry, he writes, The danger of these times requires, O most serene king, that such secret events be expressed only in enigmatic terms, which, however, have only one sense and single meaning, with no ambiguity or amphibological calculation thrown in, but rather under a cloud of obscurity. Amphibology is a figure of speech that can have more than one meaning, and Nostradamus says that his quatrains are not ambiguous or amphibological. They may be enigmatic, but they have only a single sense and meaning. He also says, Had I wanted to give a date to each quartile, this could be done, but would not be agreeable to all, still less were I to interpret them, at least until, sire, your majesty had fully authorized me to do so lest slanderers be provided the occasion to nip at me. He thus claims that he could assign a date to each specific quatrain, tying down its fulfillment to a single year. He also says that he could flat out say what each quatrain is predicting, but he won't unless the king tells him to because of how sensitive the stuff is. Once we've recognized that Nostradamus's quatrains need to be interpreted in light of historical references, what kind of things do they tend to concern? They deal with a variety of things. Some of them are what we would think of as natural disasters, like floods, plagues, earthquakes, and famines. Others deal with political developments. These include wars and battles, the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms, and some deal with religious matters. In particular, they deal with how the Catholic Church, the Pope, the bishops, and the faithful will fare in the future, including times the Church will be persecuted. They also deal with what Nostradamus refers to as sects, which he frequently uses to mean Protestant sects. After all, the Protestant Reformation had begun when he was 14 years old, and it was a major cause of public controversy at the time, with many new sects coming into existence. And still other prophecies deal with Muslims and what will happen with them in the future. At the time, there was a lot of anxiety in Europe about Muslim aggression. In fact, the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire had gotten his army all the way to Austria from what is now Turkey. And in 1529, when Nostradamus was 26 years old, Suleiman besieged the city of Vienna and tried to capture it. One of the things that Nostradamus definitely predicts is a future conquest and occupation of Europe by Muslim forces with correspondingly disastrous consequences for Christians in Europe. But even though Nostradamus predicts many nightmarish turns of affairs, he also predicts things getting better, seeing history as a combination of ill fortune and good fortune. I'd like to give you a taste of what some of his quatrains are like, some of the easier to understand ones. For example, here's Century 1, Quatrain 7, which is obviously about a Muslim invasion, if you know your European history. From the Orient shall come Punic, North African, hearts to vex Adria, Venice, and the heirs of Romulus, 
accompanied by the Libyan fleet. Malta shall quake, and the nearby isles shall be deserted. So this predicts that Muslim military forces will come on a fleet sailing from Libya in North Africa and attack Venice, Italy. Also, the Muslim forces will attack Rome, where the heirs of Romulus live. And they will threaten Malta, which is an island that has historically been the subject of dispute between Christians and Muslims. Here's Century 1, Quatrain 16. Scythe, Saturn, conjoined with Tin, Jupiter, near Sagittarius, at the highest point of its exaltation, plague, famine, death by military might, the age approaches its renewal. This one has some astrological elements in it. You can expect plague, famine, and death by military might to occur when Saturn is conjoined with Jupiter near Sagittarius as it reaches the highest point in its motion toward the end of a particular historical age. And as a third example, here's Century 1, Quatrain 47. Lake Leman's sermons shall prove tiresome. Days shall be as long as weeks, weeks as months, months as years, before they all come undone. Magistrates shall damn their mumbo-jumbo. Lake Leman is Lake Geneva, and Geneva is where John Calvin was based. Calvinist preachers could be known for preaching tiresome sermons, so Nostradamus is saying that something similar will happen in the future. There will be some future circumstance where Calvinist-like preachers will give really tiresome sermons for a long time, much to the annoyance of local magistrates. Haven't some people claimed that Nostradamus predicted the rise of Adolf Hitler, calling him Hister instead? Yeah, that's Century 2, Quatrain 24, which reads, As wild beasts famished, they shall cross the rivers. The major battle shall be close by the Hister. He shall cause the Great One to be dragged in an iron cage, while the German shall be looking at the infant Rhine. So you've got a reference to some person or group who are German looking at the Rhine River, which is in Germany, and you've got a reference to a battle taking place. The problem is that Hister has nothing to do with Hitler. Hister is simply the Latin name for the Danube River. So what this prophecy is saying is that there will be a major battle close by the Danube River. It's not about Hitler at all. In his book, Le Missourier identifies the Quatrain's historical source as follows. Pagius's De Veritate Vortunae of around 1430, contrasting the fates of the German king Sigismund of Hungary, who became king of Germany and attended the Council of Constance since 1414, and his victorious opponent, Sultan Bayezid I, Bajazet, who was dragged all over Asia in an iron cage after the Battle of Nicopolis by the Danube in 1396. So the actual historical source seems to be Pogius's 1430 book, De Varietate Fortunae, or On the Variety of Fortune. And the prophecy means that there will be a future event that's like the 1396 Battle of Nicopolis by the Danube, which was fought between the German King Sigismund and Sultan Bayezid I, who was dragged all over the place in an iron cage. So this has nothing to do with Hitler. If we now have a good idea of what many of Nostradamus' prophecies mean, can we form an assessment of how accurate they were? For the quatrains, not easily. The problem is that very few of them can be dated. So you can always say, well, this one just hasn't been fulfilled yet, making its confirmation or disconfirmation impossible. One that is tied 
to a specific date is Century 10 Quatrain 72, the one that refers to July of 1999. It reads, When 1999 is seven months over, from thereabouts shall a great hosting king restore the king from Anjois once more, who will reign propitiously once more come the spring. In this case, we have a particularly good idea of the historical background. Le Messurier writes, The source of the verse is fairly obvious. Whatever else it may refer to, it refers back to the apparently miraculous restoration to health in his Madrid prison of the evidently dying King Francois I, Duc d'Angoulême, capital of Anjoumois, in August 1525, which apparently resulted from a personal visit from his host and jailer, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was also King of Spain, and led to the resumption of his reign the following March. The unusually precise projection of the event into the future to July 1999 evidently results from the fact that no less than five planets, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon, were in exactly the same signs, Taurus, Scorpio, Virgo, Leo, and Canchetto Scorpio, respectively, on both occasions, so allowing Nostradamus to deduce that the events over which they had originally presided would be repeated when they did so again in the future, in terms of what I have called comparative horoscopy. So this is another one that shows evidence of Nostradamus using astrological calculations in addition to bibliomancy, since the same set of planets were in the same positions in July of 1999 that they'd been in August of 1525. Unfortunately, nothing like this happened in July of 1999. There was no great hosting king that helped restore the king from Anjumois. Anjumois is in France, and there is no present king of France. In fact, the phrase, the present king of France, is famous in philosophy as a phrase that has a perfectly intelligible meaning, even though it doesn't point to anyone in the real world since the French monarchy has been abolished. The phrase thus has sense, but not reference. So it was impossible for the French king to be restored to health or anything else in July of 1999 because there was no such king. Nor did the non-existent French king rule propitiously once more in the spring of the year 2000. So this is definitely a prophetic miss rather than a prophetic hit. One of the things we've talked about in other episodes, like episodes 102 and 103 on remote viewing, is that psychic powers are thought to be weak natural abilities, so they don't always deliver accurate results. And the accurate results are supposedly often mixed together with inaccurate ones. Could Nostradamus have been getting some details in his predictions right, while others are wrong? It's a possibility. Remote viewers don't claim to be accurate about everything, and they do report that even when they are correctly perceiving a target, their imagination supplies some of the details in what's known as analytic overlay. Trying to separate the authentic information from the analytic overlay is one of the major tasks in modern remote viewing, and it's why the controlled remote viewing technique was developed by Ingo Swan to help separate the signal from the noise. So if psychic powers exist, and if Nostradamus was using them, we'd need to take this possibility into account and consider whether there is a reliable signal line in his prophecies, even if it's mixed with noise. Thus, there might be some prophecies that could be counted as hits in general, even though some of the details would count as misses. Can you think of any prophecies of Nostradamus that would be general hits with specific misses? 
Two occur to me right off the bat. First, you'll recall that he told King Henry that the reason he was being so cryptic with his prophecies is because kingdoms, sects, and religions shall undergo such dramatic changes, changes so diametrically opposed to the present state of things, that if I were to reveal what the future brings, the people of the kingdoms, sects, religions, and faiths would find it so discordant to the fancy of their ears that they would condemn that which in centuries to come will be recognized as having been actually seen and witnessed. Well, the world has dramatically changed, both politically and religiously, in ways that people in the 1500s could not imagine and would have rejected if you told them. So even if some of the details of Nostradamus's predictions along these lines are misses, that's a general hit. Second, you'll also recall that one of Nostradamus's major concerns was a future Muslim invasion and occupation of Europe, with correspondingly bad consequences for Native Europeans. It's very unlikely that Europe will be conquered by a, in a military manner by Muslims any time in the foreseeable future, given the fact that the Ottoman Empire collapsed in the early 20th century. But there has been so much Muslim immigration to Europe, and the birth rate among Native Europeans is so low that many worry about a demographic transition where Europe becomes increasingly dominated by Muslims, leading to a concept that's referred to as Eurabia. The effects of this transition are a source of worry for Christian and secular Europeans, and there already has been notable civil unrest in parts of Europe that has been caused by Muslim immigrants. I can imagine a person proposing that Nostradamus was right in general terms about a future Muslim occupation of Europe, but wrong about it being due to a military conquest. What weight do you think these possible general hits should be given in evaluating the accuracy of Nostradamus's predictions? Unfortunately, I don't think we can give them particularly great weight. Regarding the first, Nostradamus's predictions cover a period of 2,242 years from his own day in 1555 down to the year 3797. It's easy to predict on completely non-psychic grounds that major political and religious changes will occur in the next 2,200 years. I mean, today, in 2021... I could confidently predict that the state of the world will be very different 2,200 years from now in the year 4263 without any claim to be psychic. And Nostradamus was already living in an era of major political and religious upheaval, so it would scarcely be necessary for him to have psychic abilities to make a prediction like this. Regarding the second prediction, the idea of a Muslim conquest and occupation of Europe was a major worry in Nostradamus's day. As we mentioned, the Ottoman Empire had gotten far into the European heartland and besieged Vienna, Austria when Nostradamus was a young man. So this was an ongoing concern, and you don't need psychic abilities to make a prediction that your entirely justified fears will one day come true. And then there's the fact that neither of these predictions has a clear-cut date for when they'll be fulfilled. They could be at any point in the future. So I don't think we can give them very much weight, even as general hits, regarding Nostradamus's prophecies. If his quatrains are too vague and undated, do we have a way forward in terms of trying to evaluate his predictive abilities? 
Our best strategy is to look outside the prophecies and see what his accuracy rate was with other predictions that can be dated. For example, we can look at his accuracy rate in the work he did making predictions for individual people. Last episode, we noted some of his predictive work he did for the Queen of France, Catherine de' Medici. In 1555, Catherine had invited him to the court to provide horoscopes of her children. He stayed a few weeks, fulfilled his obligations, predicted that the queen would see all of her sons accede to the throne. A frightening prospect, for it implied that some would die. Catherine did see three of her sons become kings. They were King Francis II, King Charles IX, and King Henry III. And she did see the first two die. So those are hits. But she also had two other sons, Louis, the Duke of Orléans, and Francis, the Duke of Anjou, who never became kings. So those are misses. Then there's the work that Nostradamus did for other professional clients. While some of them obviously were satisfied enough that they became repeat customers, there were also misses. For example, Le Messurier reports, 17th century commentator Pierre Gassendi, in his De Effectibus Sidorum, was able to cite as an example of their fallibility a horoscope that Nostradamus prepared on the basis of a rudimentary birth chart for a future local jurist by the name of Antoine Suffren, as subsequently shown to him by the latter's son, Jean-Baptiste. This predicted that he would be long and frizzy-bearded, he was in fact clean-shaven, brown-toothed, his teeth were always white, bent, he always stood perfectly straight, the heir to a fortune from elsewhere, he inherited only from his father, the victim of attacks by his brothers, he never had any, married to a foreign woman, he in fact married a local one from Salon, the father of an illegitimate child, none was ever recorded, a student of theology, natural sciences, occult philosophy, magic, geometry, arithmetic, oratory, and the liberal arts, he in fact studied law, and a navigator and musician, he was never either, and that he would live to be no more than 75. He in fact died at 53, so this at least was more or less correct, though hardly in the sense that Suffren might reasonably have expected. So this horoscope had lots of misses. When investigating psychic phenomena, the real question isn't about individual hits or misses. In any field of study, you can expect some accuracy and inaccuracy. Scientists don't expect total perfection from any study. It's the question of what pattern emerges over time and whether we see consistent evidence of better than random chance. Is there any way of making this kind of assessment of Nostradamus? I don't know of any scientific studies of his predictions, but I do know of something that could be helpful. There apparently has been a study of the predictions Nostradamus made in his almanacs, and since these predictions were often tied to particular months of particular years, their accuracy can be much more easily evaluated in statistical terms. According to Peter Lemessurier, Nostradamus's provable success rate has been calculated as of the order of 5.73% in his almanacs, which by contrast were of course specifically dated and thus checkable against actual events. Now, there's more work that would need to be done to turn this into a scientific study that would let us know whether Nostradamus is coming up with results that are better than chance. We need to look at the kinds of predictions that he's making and what level of accuracy you'd expect those kind of predictions to have if they were just due to chance. I mean, 
you know, there's not every not everything is 50 50 just because it's chance. If you're predicting the outcome of a of a of the role of a six sided die, you have a 17 percent chance of being right randomly as opposed to a 50 percent chance. So 5.73 percent might be higher than chance or equal to chance or lower than chance, depending on the kinds of predictions involved. We'd also need to take into account the issue we mentioned earlier about whether or not there might be a signal-to-noise problem that needs to be filtered out. I mean, after all, it might not be fair to count a prediction as a miss if he got a single detail wrong but everything else right. However, given all the things we've seen about his accuracy rates, I don't think the results here are particularly promising. It does not seem to me that we have good evidence that Nostradamus is able to predict events with a greater than chance accuracy rate. Given how often he missed, do you think he was sincere or was he just a hoaxer who pretended to have predictive powers, even though he knew he didn't? I think there's evidence that points both ways. On the one hand, he made a lot of predictions that turned out to be false, and he had to know that. He even admits that he can be fallible and make mistakes, so that's clear evidence of the fact he's not always right. Further, he says that he's being cryptic in the prophecies because of how people would find the future course of history too shocking to accept, but that could easily be a convenient excuse. I can imagine a psychic charlatan who knew his abilities were fake saying exactly the same thing. I I can't make straightforward predictions about specific future years because people would find what I have to say too shocking. <laughs> yeah, right. On the other hand, there is evidence that he was being sincere. He devoted a lot of effort to this, and his self-professed love of the stars and watching them at night seems to be genuine. And there's evidence that he was using the practice of bibliomancy, but refused to tell anybody about it. That suggests that he was sincere about the bibliomancy. He thought that he really was discovering past events that would recur in the future. But the practice was far enough outside the mainstream in his day that he didn't want to talk about it. So that's evidence he was sincere about what he was doing in private with the bibliomancy. So I think that the evidence points to Nostradamus being what you would call a mixed psychic. That is, someone who's partially telling the truth, who thinks he does have the ability to predict the future, but who also stretches the truth at times. Before we end, I want to ask a practical question based on what we've discussed. Should Christians today use bibliomancy? Should they pray to God and then open the Bible and look at a random passage to see what guidance it may give them? I can't entirely rule the practice out. We do see sortilege being used in both the Old and the New Testaments, and using the Bible for sortilege has been done even by Christian saints like St. Augustine, and the magisterium hasn't condemned it, at least as far as I'm aware. But there are significant dangers here. Just because bibliomancy might be possible in principle doesn't mean that you can count on it working in your case. Your results may be no more than random chance. There are therefore a bunch of qualifiers that we would need to discuss in order to provide proper safety cautions. And I mentioned before that I hope to discuss these in a future episode, but we haven't had a chance to do so yet. Therefore, I would not recommend that people simply start using bibliomancy or other forms of sortilege. There is too much danger of being misled. 
I especially would urge you not to use such methods if you have scrupulosity or obsessive compulsive disorder. People who have those conditions are the last people who should be making decisions by randomly opening a book, even if it's the Bible. This is a very sensitive issue that requires careful discussion and discernment. So for now, just don't. Okay. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on Nostradamus? Nostradamus is a fascinating individual. I think he was sincere in trying to provide predictions of the future, but I also think he was willing to stretch the truth in his favor. He apparently used a mixture of techniques that included astrology, psychic intuition, and bibliomancy. In order to understand his predictions, we need to know the historical precedents and sources for them, and this is something that modern scholars have been able to make great discoveries about. One should definitely check recent Nostradamus scholarship when interpreting what he said. However, his failure rate was so significant that I don't think we can rely on his predictions. His failure rate is simply too great for us to have confidence in his overall predictive abilities. Thus, while he may have been a sympathetic and well-meaning guy, he shouldn't be relied on as a prophet. Okay. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? We'll have a link to Peter Lemassurier's book, Nostradamus Bibliomancer, Stefan Gerson's book, The Prophecies, a dual language edition with parallel text. That's the Penguin edition. Stefan Gerson's other book, Nostradamus, How an Obscure Renaissance Astrologer Became the Modern Prophet of Doom. We'll have a link to where you can get St. Augustine's Confessions, also an article on Nostradamus, uh, one on Bibliomancy, one on Sortes Virgiliane, one on Sortes Sanctorum, information about the Mirabilis Liber of 1522, the Siege of Vienna in 1529, the Ottoman Empire, and the Arabia concept. Excellent. All right. As promised, we have mysterious feedback this time on our episodes on Paul Benowitz and Richard Doty. And our first bit of feedback comes from Anne via email, who says, As I listened to the story, it seemed Benowitz leapt to fantastic conclusions. But a funny thing happened as Jimmy continued the narrative. He didn't stop to evaluate outlandish conclusions. He just went on to the next piece of evidence and the next and the next. I began to feel disoriented and wondered if Benowitz was right and the story might be going somewhere. Each of Benowitz's conclusions sounded like a huge stretch, but as soon as I began to think about more probable theories, Jimmy was describing the next piece of the puzzle. This creates a weird cognitive sensation. I think one of your listeners has commented on this before. I imagine this is how brainwashing works. Well, I, I didn't mean it to be brainwashing, but I did try to tell Paul's story from his perspective as it unfolded around him without showing initially what was going on around him that he wasn't aware of. I think that as part of good storytelling, you don't want to spoil the ending. You want to, and and in, in understanding a person and what that person thinks, it's often important to just let them have their say and talk about their experiences without cross-examining them while they're still getting their case out. Essentially, that's what's happening as we tell Paul's story from his perspective. We're letting him have his case for, well, this is what happened to me, and these are the conclusions I came to, before we then cross-examine and say, okay, so what else could have been going on? So it's partly for storytelling reasons and partly just for I like to keep the analysis part of the show separate than the background part of the show. Okay. Brendan sent an email. Given all the links our government went through to deceive one man, Paul Benowitz, 
Is it possible that Richard Doty is not lying when he claims to have seen a video of the aliens at the Roswell incident? Not real aliens, mind you, but a faked video created to deceive the deceivers, disinformation specialists like Richard Doty? It would be an absolute devious masterstroke if the government caused people like Doty to continue to deceive when they think they're coming clean. It's possible. It's possible that Richard Doty and others have been shown faked information about alien stuff. However, in Richard Doty's case, as we said at the in the stinger for the episode, never trust anything Richard Doty says. <laughs> right. Mark wrote on Facebook, oh, wow, you set that up well for the second episode. Great stuff. I was wondering where it was all going. Thank you. Glad you enjoyed it. The key thing that we did here that was different than other presentations of this story is that I pulled apart the two aspects of it so we could see it from from Paul's perspective initially and then see it from Richard's perspective. Most of the other things I've I've seen have integrated those two and told the story from both sides at the same time, which spoils it and I think it harms the storytelling a little bit, but not everybody agrees with that. I got uh, one message uh, on the Internet from someone who really did not like that we had pulled the story apart that way. And I tried to find that message so I could quote it here because I like to give you know people who have criticisms of the show their say. Unfortunately, I couldn't find it. So I wanted to just bring it up and say that I did have, you know, at least one person say they didn't like the way the episode was structured. but. By and large, most people seem to appreciate it. A different Mark, Mark H., writes on Facebook, My feelings ran wild for these episodes. Anger, pity, frustration, hunger, the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's a real <laughs> roller coaster of a story emotionally. It is. Michael wrote on Facebook, Jimmy, I'm starting to detect a slight anti-Big Brother theme in some of your stories. Great two-part episode. Yeah, there... It, it, I, I really think carefully about the balance of episodes, but there needs to be scrutiny and sunlight on things that the government does and has done because everybody needs to be accountable. And so some of the episodes will deal with dangers of big government and of government malfeasance in various things because it's there in history. And if you forget history, you're doomed to repeat it and Someone needs to watch the watchers. So that's one of the things that we do cover. But I don't want to come across as anti-government because the government plays an important. I'm not an anarchist. And I mean that as a term. I mean, I respect people who are who have a political philosophy of anarchism in the philosophical sense who, you know, would like to. I appreciate their viewpoint on things. But for now, Given that we have nuclear weapons running around, I think <laughs> governments play a stabilizing effect in the world. And so even though they're dangerous and have, I think, more power than they should and sometimes abuse that power and need to be watched, they also do good things. And so we also cover stories where and will be covering stories where the government are the good guys. OK, uh, John on Facebook writes, great episodes. I have to say that I feel really feel bad for Paul Benowitz, a rather sad story. Clearly another example of some government officials overstepping. I'm not anti-government by any means, but it's good to hear about these abuses so that we can learn from them and hopefully prevent them from happening again. And we had a lot of people who chimed in with sympathy for Paul Benowitz and, you know, were sad about what happened to him. 
Peter wrote on YouTube, This two-part series has been by far one of your best efforts yet. You set it up perfectly with what you presented in Part 1 and how it was explained or what was really going on in Part 2. This is a great display of the presentation mastery that this program delivers. Excellent story, excellent suspense, excellent mystery. Thank you. And thank you, Peter. Like I said, I try to think carefully about the storytelling and letting people have their say from their perspective. Even if it's not in his voice, we can tell it from his perspective and then then do the what's really going on. Uh, Viga Misas on YouTube writes, I, having worked with people like Richard Doty while on active duty, I can say for certain he should not be trusted. Once you are that committed in the community, you are an asset for as long as you're useful. I have no doubt he was very useful after his service in the Air Force. And I suspect exactly the same thing. Just because you're not on the Air Force payroll anymore doesn't mean you're not working for an intelligence agency. And Mike writes via Facebook, your outro last word made me laugh out loud. Good episode. Glad you enjoyed it. I like to put stingers at the end of episodes when I can, when there's something relevant. Like in our Drop Bears episode, we did the Come to Australia song as yes. the stinger. Not every episode has that, but it shows that some folks are listening and having the little post credits and being aware of the little post credits things. Yes. And remember, never listen to Richard Tony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Well, speaking of Paul Benowitz and Richard Doty, we have a UFO update, specifically about the Navy's UFO program. There have been new Navy photographs that have been leaked of some UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, otherwise known as UFOs. So we'll have a link to that so you can see the new pictures, which have been confirmed multiple ways. Also, we'll have a link to a story about multiple Navy destroyers being swarmed by these things over multiple nights back in 2019. So very recently, just two years ago, less than two years ago, the story refers to them as drones, but the, the fact is they don't know what they were. So they're just calling them that because they don't know what else to call them. They don't look like normal aircraft. They also don't look like normal drones. And then we have a link to a story where a Navy admiral admits that the swarming drones or UAPs or UFOs are still unidentified. They don't know what they were. And he, he also talks about how it's not just us that have been seeing them, but other nations have as well. Mm, interesting. All right. I think that should do it for us this time. What are your theories about Nostradamus and the way he tried to predict the future? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next, we're going to be talking about the mysterious case of the so-called toxic woman, Gabriel Ramirez, and her case is so bizarre that it helped inspire part of an X-Files episode. Interesting. All right, folks, remember to like this episode where you find it on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook, retweet it on Twitter, and give us your likes and shares and all the good social media stuff. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World 
on StarQuest.